Thank you so much for watching my live stream here, this uh, public comment video blog, or if you're listening to the podcast, or if you're watching at some other time, hello. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to watch. I'm doing a brief audio test to make sure everything's working. Yes, it is very cool. This is a special video blog that I'm doing today. Paired an outline, you see. So today, I graduate officially. That is to say, I've already technically graduated. I've already uh, finished college. However, today is the graduation ceremony. And I was blessed with the opportunity, the uh, invitation to speak at this uh, graduation event. And this propelled me, motivated me, compelled me to deeply reflect the significance of this day and of the meaning of graduating, getting a bachelor's degree in liberal studies. What it means to do so at 33 years old versus having done so at 22 as perhaps it would have been a more preferable thing had it happened that way. Why did it happen this way as opposed to that way? That's what I want to talk to you about today. But first, one of the most interesting things I got to do while I was uh, completing my bachelor's degree was read from this book, Montaigne's Complete Essays. All personal essays, however, imbued with a lot of philosophy and history and politics and scholarly contemplations. I got to write an essay on Montaigne and evaluate Montaigne. And sadly, in the last few months, I've drifted away from some of the pleasures that were reading this wonderful book. One of the things about this book that's so awesome, they're personal essays. They're essays that dive into the soul and based on various subjects and what each of these subjects, topics mean to the essayist. And today I was contemplating how this coincides with the concept of the vlog. That is the essay in comparison to the vlog. And I was thinking about the personal essay in comparison to the personal vlog and realized at this point in time, it would appear that what I'm doing as I do so freely and just allow myself to go where I go, 
that one of the more accurate descriptions I could offer for this public comment series that I've undertaken is essentially the personal video blog and personal podcast endeavor. And so I find quite an affinity with Montaigne and I believe as I move forward, I will be concentrating on how I can better integrate both the personal aspect of relating to a topic and the more intellectual aspect of it. You'll forgive me, I hope, for taking a sip of this coffee as I begin this particular video blog, this live stream. It is 7.20 a.m. I woke up at 5 and didn't go to bed until 11 something. So it wasn't one of the fuller nights of sleep. However, coffee is a wonderful thing. I am in extraordinarily high spirits and thrilled to have the opportunity today to speak to you and proceed with these video blogs. A word more on this video blog and podcast, the personal video blog and personal podcast concept before I delve more specifically into graduating and education. We find ourselves, I've said it before in numerous other video blog entries and I'll therefore reiterate that this would clearly be a motif. However, it occurs to me based on research that I've initiated recently that the video blog and podcast both as mediums Think about the significance of the fact that they've really just begun. Really only into the early 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, have these two mediums, these two mediums of personally addressing the world outside of the conventional written word essay concept or works of art and commentary that were less accessible. Especially with the, um, I think, the video blog and the podcast and the extemporaneous, especially. I think that... I imagine that if Montaigne, my dear, um, my dear I want to call Montaigne my dear friend, although I'm not sure he would think of me as such. However, I'd like to imagine if Montaigne was aware that we could record videos of our thoughts and think out loud extemporaneously 
perhaps with just a bit of brief preparation so that we were sure at least of substance to proceed with that in fact uh, this fellow would undertake that enterprise it's a way to really look into the human soul and say this is what a person is this is what this person is at this point in time with greater intimacy than i can imagine any in any other medium or context so with that you see my aesthetics of video blogging and podcasting evolves and i begin speaking more specifically here about graduating college and education now you must understand ladies and gentlemen that throughout most of my life i was a what you would call a poor student i got an f when i was in 5th grade and i think my mother was shall we say rather not thrilled when this happened and i wasn't sure what that meant to me when it happened i can tell you that the most discernible cause had to do with an utter reluctance to engage in homework i despised homework i despised homework more than i think i despised just about anything as i perceived it especially by the time the school day was over and you must understand understand the school day for me was miserable i didn't really have friends my self esteem was about as poor as you could imagine i was deeply depressed and deeply anxious all the time and so the school day for me was a kind of profound torture by the time i got home the last damn thing in the world i wanted to do was plunge my mind into my studies because i needed relief from a day which i mean i hate to tap into it but the day that would bring me so much i mean pain loneliness depression negativity bad feelings you know I don't remember these times very well. I probably blocked it out quite successfully overall. Those of you, I know there are a few Facebook friends out there who um actually know me. Knew me then, there are a few. I'd like to think that you see me now as somebody profoundly different. uh but those who do know me or did know me then would know that um even when i injected myself into a conversation or two 
I was extraordinarily shy, terrified of every word I uttered, sure, utterly convic- convinced that everybody despised me, and certainly in that broader context, context outside or beyond the, the social element, also then intellectually, academically, it's not as if suddenly there was this miraculous sense of confidence or good feelings. So my academics in those days, my studies, my engagement with school was one of reluctance and seeking refuge from it, away from it, a way to retreat. And that would have been at the start, uh, when I, uh, my, you know, childhood, my earliest refuge from the drudgery that I, an awfulness that I thought was school was writing, acting, ghost stories, movies, plays, these kinds of things. Now, with that said, life can be such an amazing thing, can't it? Because back when I was 11 years old, 10 years old, with an F in math, to a 33-year-old with a 3.98 GPA. Now look, just to be clear, I really don't care that much about the GPA thing. I rarely bring it up, usually feel no need whatsoever to bring it up, and only bring it up to illustrate a point, which is that you can indeed transition in life from a place of apparent and utter failure as uh, was the place where I came from to a state of what one might call success or at least a place where you can demonstrate a set of competencies which you never believed beforehand would have been possible. If you asked me, twenty years ago, twenty-two years ago, would I have ever visualized myself graduating at thirty-three? First of all, would you would I have even visualized myself necessarily graduating college? at all, going to college. But if I was going to, I mean, would it have been 33? Shouldn't it have been 22? We'll get to that. However, um, if you'd ask me, would I be capable of even graduating and with the grades that surpassed that of a C? I don't think I would have believed it. 
And I tell you, and I'm going to delve into this very shortly, this is how much psychology and self-confidence and also philosophy, what you believe is possible and why you believe is possible, how these things are so significant and consequential to a young person's development and can drive an individual towards a detrimental set of circumstances or set of better circumstances. And there's a lot of complexities to it. You can't really blame one thing, but you can look at a variety of factors that contribute and especially self-esteem and philosophy and psychology, I would say are hugely fundamental factors for me. The next point then that I want to make graduating at 33 years old, as opposed to 22, right? Speaking of a psychological element here. God, I don't know about you, but I love coffee. Don't drink alcohol, by the way. I don't. Uh, it's been almost, it's been since January. So that's four months, not a drop of alcohol. So how about that for proactive measures one can take in the name of trying to be a healthier and better person? Yeah, it would have been a wonderful thing to have pulled this off 11 years earlier. I would have graduated in 2008 as opposed to 2019, 2000, 2018, 2019. I would have graduated in 2008. It feels weird to be a 33-year-old contemplating graduation because I don't feel as proud as I think I would have had this been the thing I got to achieve 11 years earlier. Then I think the excitement and the significance would have been a lot more intense and in certain respects I wish that it could have happened that way on the other hand I'm blessed with a decade of experience behind this graduation. And, you know, there is the college world and there's the real world. And the thing is, I've seen of the real world, as we call it, or the world outside the ivory tower, as others might call it. And 
also I know a bit about the world that I'm diving into now equipped with a bit more knowledge and education. Not that I'm denigrating the education, I just, uh, I'd say, Sean O'Connor trademark to enjoy putting things in quotes. I just, it, just, it amuses me. So, on the one hand, there is this degree of shame and embarrassment to be 33 and waving my hands up and down and saying, yeah, I'm graduating college. And I feel like as if I'm parading myself as someone who is so severely underdeveloped maturing so flamboyantly late um, a real late bloomer if you will and it makes me feel therefore like a piece of me feels not as smart or mature or healthy or competent as those peers of mine or those folks who got to trying to make this a little bit more center, uh, who, who succeeded in pulling this endeavor off when they were supposed to. When society says we're all supposed to do that. That's one way of looking at it. And that's, that's one emotional experience one could have. Yet the privilege of a liberal studies education is that I learn how to think about things from multiple perspectives and analyze things critically and question my assumptions. And in the first place then, I'm able to do the more conventional cliche thing and forgive myself. That is to say, I don't resent myself or hate myself or linger in self-pity or some kind of self-esteem problem because it took me, because it had to happen here and now this way. It's a fact I'm able to, I'm just able to say, this is the time and place when I received my bachelor's degree. And uh, to that end, I am able to think with greater understanding and also flexibility and think about the world not in terms of uh, at this age you must do that at this age you must do that you must do this in life you must do that in life no to the contrary now I'm just able to say okay here you are what are the things you want to do why do you want to do them 
and what is the context surrounding all of that as you reflect. Also, and I, I did bring this up earlier, but I want to hone in on it now. There is the fact that things like you know, depression and anxiety and incorrect philosophical ideas are going to impede, I believe, one's academic success. And I'm therefore able to understand certain things that are indeed impediments for people who are younger and trying to make their way. On that note, I want to jot down another Chiron. And we'll call it this. We'll call it this. Depression, anxiety, incorrect philosophy, Role of, let's see if this will fit. Role, how, depression, anxiety, incorrect philosophy, impact, education. Let's see if this fits. Education. Those of you listening to the podcast, I apologize. One of the, um, one of the frustrations that come with doing your own video blog and trying to add effects when you're live streaming is that, I mean, you're doing it yourself. Depression, anxiety, philosophy, philosophy, impact, how, philosophy, yeah, there we go, how, depression, anxiety, philosophy, educa impact education. Let's go. No. Okay. Sorry, I apologize. Depression, anxiety, philosophy, and education. Go. Got it. Man, it's all spelled correctly. Depression, anxiety, philosophy, and education. See, my bachelor's degree paid off. I can spell. Again, if you're just listening to the podcast here, then you're missing the context of the lower third chiron that I'm injecting into the, the video version of this, uh, which people can see to give it more of a sense of subject awareness. So you see, the thing is, and I will try to make this as succinct as I can. 
the kind of the way I would characterize the specific kind of depression that I experienced was first of all I should preface this by saying that um, I do believe there's a sort of genetic thing uh, my grandmother on my father's side suffered from severe depression and had to undergo a series of shock treatments and things of that sort and I, I don't really know to what avail it was quite haunting when I would visit her and her depth of withdrawal and reluctance to engage her detachment uh, the sadness and lifelessness remaining in bed as she did that's something I certainly don't want for myself and don't want for others and I'm sorry that it happened to her I think it's possible that there's a genetic component to that for me the I would say probably the most fundamental aspect of my depression was it was twofold. Number one, there was a real self-esteem. Uh, there was a real crisis in self-esteem. It is what it is. Uh, I think, as I had said before, I just viewed myself as utterly incompetent. I did not believe I could grasp most concepts. I did not believe I could really think logically or do math or comprehend complex scientific notions. I, it all terrified me. So the consequence of that would be, I think, to detach from it and not engage in it. And when additionally, this self-esteem problem, right, it, it, there's a um, academic aspect to it and a social aspect. So I was socially awkward and terrified and also terrified of any anything academic expected of me. And that, with the self-esteem crisis there would lead to a, also a severe depression, a lack of motivation. It would seem purpose. What would be the point? If, if it were a fact that I was indeed just exceptionally incompetent, then what would be the point of reiterating it to myself over and over again just forcing myself to fail over and over again just to say that you're supposed to do it right that wouldn't have made sense so i withdrew and i was very depressed and further therefore detached from the academic world and experience and all of these school education things and therefore couldn't really learn and didn't really learn much um Right, so next, the anxiety. 
Anxiety is extremely difficult for me to talk about because the fact of the matter is I am on a medication for it. And it could get very severe. I would just, um, I was terrified of everything at times. So I, I just, uh, just could think when I wasn't feeling depressed, I was feeling scared of people, scared of failure. Uh, often there was a fear of death that, um, would pervade and, um, I would have panic attacks and, um, once I actually fainted, <laughs> I was on the, I was getting off of the school bus and I had some kind of weird panic attack to the point where I actually fainted and had to go see the nurse. And since then, every time I felt as if I were going to faint, I would, uh, I would get a panic attack or something of that sort. So, you could see then how, like, concentrating on my school stuff would seem extravagantly impossible. Add to this, you know, like, the normal adolescent stuff, like, it'd be nice to have a girlfriend. And then the stress that would come when I, for reasons that were beyond my understanding, would for a very brief time have a girlfriend and talk about anxiety and self-esteem and depression issues going all over the place. And then, you know, you feel like, you know, well, you wonder if everybody else is having sex and perhaps you're not. Well, not perhaps, you know, I, I wasn't. Um, and you think, Gosh, I just feel so um, different than what I thought I was supposed to feel like. And, you know, this fundamental principle of yourself as inferior to other people actually emerges and solidifies and that begins to catastrophically wreak havoc on any kind of perspective academic pursuits if you will okay so the next point then philosophy I knew a girl, I won't name who she is, She's not my wife, um, but a girl I knew uh, some time ago. And we once had a conversation on philosophy, and I will never forget how she characterized it. She said that philosophy is for bored male adolescents. I mean, keep in mind, this gal was young herself, 
I don't think we'd even made, uh, I don't think either of us were 20 yet when that specific conversation occurred. So, you know, it's not as if I would chastise her today for making that comment. If I were held accountable for all the stupid comments I made, to quote Bob Dylan, if my thought dreams could be seen, they'd probably put my head in a guillotine. And if I think the same could be said, God, of some of the things I've said, I don't even remember all the things I've said in life, but all the things I've said that are probably so stupid. If life were a commentary, how much of it I would delete, erase, scratch out, revise, right? But here's the thing, as we talk about philosophy and how philosophy, right, theoretically, or I would say in practice, impacts the adolescent mind as it's striving towards education or failing to, what are your fundamental principles at this point in your life? Do you believe that knowledge exists? And if you don't, How does that impact the way you're going to engage with it? With what people throw at you and claim as knowledge? I would argue it would be rational to assume you'd find it meaningless or not utterly necessary for you. And what about the realm of ethics where we ask ourselves, you know, what's the meaning of life and what are people supposed to do with their lives? What should our fundamental values be? How do we determine those values? Now, it could be argued, of course, this is all rather high-minded and abstract, especially for teenagers. And in fact, I mean, they, I think I've heard it, I think I learned in my psychology class, the brain doesn't fully develop till you're 25. So there is a question of at what point is it appropriate in a psychological context or even a biological neurological context to present abstract concepts to a young mind. But you know, I mean, for the record, I don't know how many among you are of a religious bent, but I have observed that people who subscribe to the various religions they're, it's often thrust upon them when they're quite young. I mean, when I was 11, 12, oldest 13, my best friend and I at the time, we were having debates on the existence of God. Certainly the mind can wrap itself around these things, even if it can't derive at correct answers. Um, and for sure, Certain parents out there are bombarding their children with ideological, philosophical principles and therefore, you know, significantly influencing these values, whether their children are going to question them or not. And then, you know, you get into a really complex debate about, right, 
parents exercising their freedom to, of course, teach their own values as they do and how that can conflict with implicit claims of values and ethics in your school schooling, especially, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, especially. I would say, and I've said in the past, if I could have at least understood, I think, the meaning of the law of non-contradiction as laid out by Aristotle. This notion, which Ayn Rand explains this way, A is A, right? A thing is what it is. It can't be anything other than what it is. Uh, this is a piece of paper. Conceptually speaking, no matter what word you bring to it, it's still that thing made from a tree you can write on, etc. I do wonder if outside the context of science and math, if logic were taught as an important concept, and if it were defined properly, how does that impact the way someone learns? How would it have impacted the way I learned? Or would I have been so like mentally unwell and so tainted with an awful way of thinking that I couldn't have, it wouldn't have been possible psychologically for me to appreciate it. I don't know. By the way, I want to make it clear that um, I wasn't mistreated or anything when I was young. My family is a very loving family. I suppose I have my criticisms of my father, which run rather deep and do reach into the realm of ethics, but I can't say that he didn't um, feel love for me or anything like that, or engage with me, you know. Uh, there was a relationship that we had, and we had rich intellectual conversations at some point. I, I don't want anyone to have any kind of impression that I had a bad upbringing and that that had anything to do with the sort of awkward psychological and philosophical place I found myself in. The world is much more complicated than that. You know, you'd have to look at a lot more context and nuance there such as what were finances like for my mother and stepfather and um, you just have to look at everybody else's story including my own and how they work together and say that even then that's only like a tiny piece of it. But just for the record, my mother always said that she loved me every day. Still does. My mother is very loving. My stepfather. My grandparents, very loving. 
always wanting to talk, ask me questions, and always taking an interest in my well-being. So, psychological thing, philosophical thing, look, you have to understand the context of the society we also live in. I wish I could get into postmodernism and how I believe that has caused so many social and psychological problems in this society inadvertently, I think in a lot of cases, but that's such a deep, complex, loaded issue that it profoundly takes us away from this conversation of graduating college. Thus, I will not concentrate on that uh, any further. I will just say this. By the time I was a sophomore at Florida Gulf Coast University, and I had in my possession the assumptions that there was no such thing as a fact, and that reality was meaningless, if there was any reality at all, and that I could make no impact on my own destiny. All of that absolutely stifled my engagement with my education, my ability to learn, and my attitude. My attitude. It made me I'm searching for the best adjective here. Dogmatically and incessantly pessimistic and negative. And that made my academic life, shall we say, not a reasonable expectation to occur at all. Now there's an irony to all of this. It's not as if I was anti-thought. It's not as if I was, uh, it's not as if I rejected the universe or lacked a personality or interests, or things, ironically, that I could, in fact, acquire a tremendous deal of knowledge and analysis from. Anyone who would know me when I was really young would know I was obsessed with John Travolta when I wanted to be a movie actor. He was my idol. And I was obsessed with Greece, and I learned all the lyrics to all the songs, and... I thought not only did I want to be a movie actor like John Travolta, I wanted to be able to sing and I wanted to be able to write song lyrics. And that led me into poetry and fascination with songs and music. And I wanted to be like the Bee Gees who wrote music to Saturday Night Fever. I wanted to be like Nickelback was really popular at the time. Creed was really popular at the time. Rolling Stones were still popular and these 
raw artists who were writing lyrics that I thought, well, I wish I could write like that. So, you know, I was always analyzing song lyrics and things like that. So it's the irony here is that even if I wasn't paying attention at school, it's not as if I ironically was uh, not out to learn, at least in an independent way. I was. And by the time I did start college for the first time at Kane University in 2004, 2005, that was the academic year. I mean, I did okay in college, actually, ironically, I didn't fail anything. I don't remember what I got in my math class, though. I didn't fail it. Maybe I didn't even get a D, I don't know. All that being said, though, I really didn't care about what I was learning. And since I really didn't have a life or many friends, I was able to indulge in uh, my independent studies of Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and Bob Dylan and Jim Morrison and John Lennon, Arthur Rimbaud, Charles Baudelaire. Ovid, Sappho, Percy Shelley, the world of poetry was opened up to me. And this concept of like the rebellious poet created in my brain the sense of self, this very ironic, strange sense of self, where in fact there is this set of knowledge that I love to possess and there is this set of a skill set uh, that I love to possess. But Education, strangely enough, could have nothing to do with it, institutionally speaking. I thought any institution of education was out to brainwash me, so I had to get out. I had to resist. And so I dropped out. Though I eventually went back, I dropped out again, then I went back, then I dropped out again. And there was a bit of a vicious cycle there. And I touched on this, I think, yesterday. I probably touch on it a lot with you. The strange thing occurs when I'm 25 and I'm not in college. I'm poor and very unhappy and not able to feel any sense of productivity or usefulness. And that's when I evaluate my philosophical assumptions in a way that I never had before. That is to say, as opposed to holding assumptions as I had in the past, I just sort of, even if my assumptions were changing, you know, because by the way, not only was I independently studying poetry, but also philosophy, specifically Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, and the pragmatists, William James and John Dewey. And I was also very into this whole, you know, law of attraction concept that uh, was suggested by the creators of The Secret and Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. So there was a sort of evolving ideological experience for me in that I was always open to an improved idea or principle or set of those things. However, at 25 years old, 
I really stepped back and I deeply evaluated my assumptions and my priorities and ironically in this case became an objectivist subscribed almost dogmatically to the philosophy of Ayn Rand. And I guess that's sort of like the next phase here, uh, say, irony of my objectivism. Just changing the caption here. At this point, I would call this next point sort of the irony of my objectivism. So I begin to hold, I begin to view the world through a newfound belief in facts, a newfound embracing of facts. I begin spending X amount of minutes throughout the day allocated to various subjects. I read my economics, I read my history, I read my philosophy, I forced myself even to do math, I read about space, I read about my politics, I read my newspaper. I was doing everything I could to plunge myself into this world of knowledge and embrace a positive attitude towards knowledge and learning. But I still refused to go to college, which made all of this really ironic. I had this strange attitude where I guess the rationale was, well, if I'm capable of determining on my own as an independent thinker that objectivism is where it's at, well, then I must not need college. Clearly, I'm just like the next revolutionary philosopher, you know, and I became pathetically cocky and I intensified my conviction. I was intensified in my conviction that I didn't need college. So it was going to have nothing to do with it. And in fact, some of my most academic ideas and some of my deepest negativity in the realm of academia and learning and college and community were all in their prime at this point in my life, 25, 26, 27. And again, the irony, reading all the time and developing my own philosophy and writing essays all the time and doing so in a in an otherwise and ironically academic way. And yeah, the irony of it all. But it wasn't amounting to anything like good for me right good for me i call myself an objectivist i now can appreciate learning and knowledge but first of all as a 
cashier, my interest in politics wasn't going to give me some newfound influence in the realm of workplace policy. Though I did try. I was not more successful because I was into philosophy. I was not more successful because I enjoyed learning. I was still just a cashier at McCaffrey's. And you know, my blogs or video blogs or creative endeavors were amounting to anything. I ran for office as a libertarian. That was, there was its own significance to it in terms of the things I learned. But, you know, this, this great newfound objective attitude wasn't, it was only taking me so far. It was starting to improve my relationships with my, with my mother and members of my family. And it was at least giving me a kind of confidence in my ability to think and give myself a new awareness of things, uh, having beforehand been so tragically oblivious. But um, it wasn't, first of all, it wasn't going to lead me to like anything economic, financial though I was so convinced that I could prove that I didn't need college and I was just going to be this successful blogger. That didn't happen, and there were no prospects even. And by the way, it actually made me very isolationist. Then it, I go to college. And how does this happen? Why do I go back to college? There are really three, four reasons why. First of all, they tell you, you know, the, what the new saying is, if you want a good job that pays, you should probably go to college. That was becoming apparent to me as I was searching for a job that was more meaningful to me than cashiering. Uh, and that wasn't happening. So clearly the path I was taking was wrong and I needed to try another route. It was one reason why I decided to go back to college. Um, I guess I changed my caption at this point to the reasons why I went back to college. The reasons why I returned to college. And does it work? Does, does it fit in the space allotted to me? Uh, there's a brief typo. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. There we go. The reasons why I returned to college. So, that will be part of it. Um, I'd also made a deal with my wife. We weren't quite married yet, though we were. We'd been together a long time. My wife and I have been together romantically since, I think, 2008. So it's been, it's been some time. <laughs> um, now I'm feeling all sentimental. 
Ashley and I were talking and the conversation got to this point where you know, she said, first of all, you're so interested in politics then maybe you should get a degree in political science and that will increase your odds of succeeding as a political commentator or a politician. Secondly, I had run for the New Jersey state legislature, specifically the assembly, one of the assembly seats in the 14th legislative district, and I had failed. And I had made a deal and said, I'll tell you what, if I don't get that job that I'm after running for this office, I would have made, I think, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year if I actually succeeded. Um, I said, fine, then I will go to college and try a different route to getting a job. So that was another reason why I returned to college. But here's another uh, motivating factor, and this is this brings us back to philosophy and attitude and something more fundamental and specific here. Not more specific, but I think more fundamental. My hero or shiro at the time was Ayn Rand, and I was an objectivist, right? Well, one of Ayn Rand's firmest convictions, and so those of you who dismiss Ayn Rand off the bat and are like, hey, she's this crazy libertarian lady whose politics are way off and she's callous and not a rational thinker, even if she says she is. Remember that Human beings are not like a hundred percent wrong about a hundred percent thing of things, nor are they a hundred percent right about a hundred percent of things. So Ayn Rand had her strong points in life and supported some positions very eloquently and people who read her thoughts or listen to her talk, in fact, can be moved towards some positive directions if they will consider some of the things she says. One of the points that she makes is that if you really want to change the world, you start with the colleges and the universities, because first of all, that's where the philosophers are. And it's the universities that influence where our culture goes. The ideas that permeate the culture as you may be aware, if you're a reader of the news, right, the, a lot of the activity, activity in academia, especially a lot of the research findings or things that professors say leak into the media. You often have professors who are commentators in the media. So there is this relationship, in fact, between academia, media, and culture and I was in this libertarian phase and saying, in this objectivist phase and saying, I've got to make the world more objectivist and libertarian. So going to college, there's one more reason why. Now I shouldn't pretend here that I am all wonderful or great with positive thinking without any kind of selfish motives. It is also the fact that my grandfather left behind a bit of money that I was able to spend on my college education exclusively, only. And I had refused to do that despite that money being there for me. One of the deals was if I study 
in college, I could also apply some of that money to my rent. When you're making minimum wage, let's face it, poverty is a crushing and miserable thing. And if there's going to be something as generous out there for you to make something more of your circumstances in terms of resources. Yes, it occurred to me that that was an opportunity I should take advantage of. I should tell you, uh, much of that money had been squandered, alas, in some of my earlier pursuits of education, my first two years of college before I went back officially. So I sort of get to experience both the, the lucky, privileged, middle-class, white, heterosexual male with a little bit of money to go to college aspect of life. And I also get to experience the now I have to go into debt and borrow money from the federal government and the state while I work a low-paying job part-time kind of college student. I got both worlds there. Very interesting. So now you see my intentions in the full or spectrum of it. And so now I want to tell you how college changed me because it changed me so profoundly. Think about this. So I, I, I begin college as a, as an arrogant objectivist libertarian fellow who thinks he knows everything and initially is only viewing college as a means to an end because he said he would do it and saw some material gain and could manipulate it and make it more libertarian and objectivist. You know, there was, there were, well, I was not viscerally in my heart quite there yet, embracing the privilege and opportunity. Uh, but then things change in a wild way. The first really significant thing to happen was my, it was the second semester back and it was a summer course I was taking. I was taking two summer courses. They were, I think, really intense. I think they were, they were the three or five week courses. You know, you go in every day of the week almost for like four hours a day. And the first part of the summer was math. And the second part of the summer was psychology. The psychology, in a lot of ways, was actually harder than the math. But ironic for me because math was always difficult for me. But for math, it was a matter of just practice. If I just did the practice and asked the questions, then, in fact, I could succeed. With psychology, there was a lot of memorizing abstract concepts, and I was severely intimidated by it. 
And this is when it occurred to me. And now, so at this point in my life, I'm 27, 28. It would be 2014. Uh, into 2000, yeah, it would have been the summer of 2014, my God. Wow. And so that's half a decade ago now. Time does go by, doesn't it? And in my deep fear and intimidation, this class, I start researching how to learn because it occurs to me, even though I've done my own autodidactic stuff, I had never really researched how to learn and squared that away with how, you know, reconciled that with how, compared it and contrasted it with my current practices. And so I began researching how to learn. And I began to adopt the practices that made the most sense to me. And by the end of that second summer semester, in that psychology class, I'd gotten a hundred percent on a test and I had become an A student for the first time in my life. And that was the moment when I thought I should perhaps be in academia. I should be a professor. I love academia. Finally, something I can feel good at. And not only that, but, oh, so all this time, really, I can learn not just on my own saying I know this and calling myself a philosopher who can argue some aspects of my philosophy, but in fact, I can be tested by a professor with a doctorate, with a PhD, and succeed. I can't begin to tell you what this did for my self-esteem, and I can't begin to tell you how this changed my attitude towards the college experience from that point on becoming a student being a student and trying to succeed as a student became one of my greatest and dearest passions in life and i took some interesting courses where, in fact, knowledge was imparted on me, and I began to really learn more about the world. I took a class on journalism, eventually got to be the opinion page editor for the College Voice and write a column. Very awesome thing. And learn about interviewing people and learn about how politicians handle student reporters. Learn about the newsroom process to a degree. I got to go, in fact, to a convention in Manhattan. It's a national convention where college, I think it was called the College Media Association. If you actually check out my blog site, publiccomment.blog, I believe it's the very first blog I ever published. Well, 
It's the first blog that I published that I haven't deleted. So it's the oldest lingering blog on my site. Actually, uh, you can find interviews with Scott Pelley, question I ask Scott Pelley, and um, I think two other people that are posted and published on that, in that article, in that blog post. I took courses on women and the law and learned more about the reality of what women experience. I took a course, several courses on liberal studies as a concept and what it means to examine topics from various academic perspectives and therefore gain a holistic view of something and think about things holistically and critically in that way. I took a class on Native American culture and experience and learn the reality of the plight of the American Indians in a way that, you know, it's the kind of thing you hear about, you hear about what we did to them, but how often do you hear in the news about the fact that they suffer the highest unemployment? How often do you hear in the news that they have the lowest life expectancy, especially on reservations like the Pine Ridge Reservation in North Dakota? And how deeply do you really understand the horrific things that Americans did to the Indians? And how does that change who you are as a person and the way you think about how you're going to conduct your life? Taking courses on American history, learning how in this story of America where Freedom is sort of an ironic thing where on the one hand, you've got your freedom of the press and religious freedom and civil rights and rights that bind us through legal equality in theory, ideally, and issues of that kind in contrast to laissez-faire capitalism, pure economic liberty and how, especially if you take this back to the story of how the colonists treated the Native Americans and the African Americans, you know, slavery and genocide, if you give certain people the freedom to abuse other people, and exploit them, the tragic reality based on the empirical evidence that is the story of humanity, that freedom will be abused. That's not disputable. And that's, I mean, in the most blunt and succinct set of words, that's why I could not any longer be a libertarian because in fact to just leave people with freedom to the degree which if they care to if they, if they want to exploit and abuse they will well, that's unacceptable that's unethical and I could not stand for that any longer 
and taking a course, taking several courses on the Holocaust in Nazi Germany and understanding the nuances involved in the destruction of a democracy and genocide and how that's all implemented and how it's not just a matter of the ideology of hate or anti-Semitism, but in fact, politics and attitudes towards politics all play into these kinds of things. So I, through my experience in college, I, I, I suddenly have this broader understanding of this world around me with details and specifics and just a load of knowledge that I hadn't had that change my outlook and inform, literally inform my outlook. And at the conclusion of my academic studies, I got to study creative writing. And here comes sort of another whole slate of ironies. The advantage to one of my last classes being creative nonfiction was that essentially I could read about whatever I wanted to read about and I could write about whatever I wanted to write about, which was how I got the opportunity to plunge into Montaigne. And this was what led me to decide at the time that I wanted to go get an MFA in creative writing. I saw the concept of creative writing as essentially the academic discipline of verbal free thinking. That was how I conceptualized it. And that made me psyched because that's by the concluding months and weeks of my academic experience. I thought this was what it all came down to the ability to think creatively and critically and freely, autonomously and holistically and just study what that means. And while I now have a whole new slate of thoughts on creative writing as a concept and as it's treated in academia. That's another conversation for another day. In exploring creative writing and therefore literature, sort of seeing what it means to apply holistic thinking to the reflection on the human experience and how that translates into what we write about and how we write creatively or literarily, how one might put it perhaps. This propelled me into a place where I could introspect very deeply. One of the frustrations was that this, um, in the first place, took me away from a deeper focus on politics, which is, let's face it, those of you who know me know there's just no, there's no Sean O'Connor getting away from the politics of things. It's one of my passions in life. 
but the literature and the creative writing was taking me away from that. And there was also the fact that I wanted to go to graduate school and trying to get into grad school was one of the worst experiences of my life and yet one of the most informative. I can only say that um, really stressed me out severely. Um, but it forces you to think about your future. And I was forced to think about if I'm going to go to, you know, you have to write a statement of purpose. And writing a statement of purpose, you have all these people look at your statement of purpose and offer their thoughts. And you really have to have a sense of vision and sense of your own sort of, really your own sort of little mini philosophy of your future as a researcher and producer of things. And I was trying to do that in such a way where I could find a marriage between my personal interests and what it seemed uh, were a set of, uh, what seemed, I mean, let me be blunt about it actually. There was a strain existing where by I had my interests and my assumptions and I saw that in the various places, various schools I was applying to, they had their assumptions and their values and their notions of creative writing and what was good and what was bad. And there is this anxiety of trying to be both independent and try to appeal to them. And I was so caught up in all of that, so stressed out by all of it, that I just, I really lost all sense of time, to be honest with you. And I lost all sense of self. I lost all sense of the world in certain respects, because I was so plunged into being as equipped as I possibly could to present a writing portfolio and statement of purpose that would make me an ideal candidate for a creative writing MFA program and teaching assistantship. Which by, by the end of it all, I got into the school I wanted to get into most, but I didn't get the assistantship. And so, I mean, the fact is, as things stand now, I can't afford it. So I may not be going, which is fine. I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. I consider it a lot less stressful, more interesting at this point, to be honest with you. And, you know, now I'm out of college and for a while I felt bitter, actually. Not because I didn't get the graduate assistantship. Um, felt bitter because I wasn't sure what I was left with in a practical sense from my college education. And I was feeling very, this is ironic actually, because I felt very on my own. 
force, I was in a place of now forced independence where my success was no longer about whether or not I got an A. Now I've got to get a job and it would be nice to get a job where I can make some money. And you begin then to think about this world which the universities spend so much time theorizing about, this world of practice where things happen outside the ivory tower and what it means to be a part of that. And I do believe that college leaves me with an ability to think, to think critically. And you know what? Between my shifts at the Mercer County Community College Learning Center, where I work as a writing tutor, and my free time away from there when I'm not searching for a job and I can just think and research and put my thoughts together and produce what I will, right? It turns out when left to my own devices, I find myself video blogging and I find myself finally experiencing, first of all, sense of being uninhibited and liberated funny right because i studied liberal arts liberal studies and i'm feeling liberated and i'm enjoying my productive enterprise here and in fact i see a future for myself in this medium and so there is a classmate of mine who I think I saw post something on Facebook uh, to the extent something like college isn't going to give you a job but it will give you the tools to go get a job or something like that and I'm thinking a lot about that and how college didn't perhaps leave me with certain things that I thought it would I thought that college would thrust me into a graduate assistantship teaching assistantship and a future as a professor, uh, just by virtue of who I was in college. Uh, but it turns out to take some time absorbing and processing what it means no longer to be in college and become this new independent college graduate and apply your new mind to the world around you, you begin to do your own thing. You become independent. And here I am doing that. And that's what it's done for me. At the end of the day, here I am video blogging, podcasting, talking to you with a degree of confidence and contemplation and reflection and a somewhat appropriate vocabulary and something where I could be both creative and intellectual think about things though in a practical way as well uh, did you know I've learned a lot about technology now I now know how to use an internet a, a software a computer software to live stream and do things with my live stream and I know how to convert one kind of file to another kind of file and podcast. And I know, understand podcast hosting. And I know how to send a podcast from one 
web venue to another. And I mean, I still got a lot to learn. This is all new. But I, I guess my point is that when it comes to a sort of final... I don't think anything is final until you're dead, so I'm not going to go that far. But if I could have here a concluding notion for today's video blog, as I think on how today I'm graduating and what all of this comes down to for me today. I feel confident in my ability to put together a product that I believe in and share it with you in such a way that you can derive some sense of meaning from it and that you will know at the end of the day, even if you find yourself disagreeing with the things that I say or you find yourself very critical of how I do something, you didn't like the way I did it or the way I put it or sound of my voice or whatever your aesthetic or intellectual qualm with me could be. I did this from a perspective of someone who was informed. I did this from the perspective of someone who got an education beyond the high school education. I humbled myself and stopped seeing myself as the god of philosophy or the genius of all things and instead learned to say, there are a lot of brilliant people out there who can teach me a thing or two. And then maybe I can learn how to produce something of value and take away from that the fact that as I continue on in life, we all have a lot that we can learn from each other. And what I'm going to talk about tonight in my graduation is the value of community and college as a community and what it means to be an individual within a community. And I've said it, it, this is my motif. At the end of the day, I'm here to talk to you to increase a sense of understanding, get to know each other better, have more empathy for each other, and you know, probe into the human experience more, become more aware of things like that. So I've actually got to... Uh, get ready for my shift at the tutoring center. It's our last day of the semester. And then I've got uh, graduation to prepare for. I want to thank you so much today for taking the time to watch and or listen to this video blog slash podcast on the topic of my um, experience with college, my thoughts on college and education. And I want to encourage you to check out my blog site, publiccomment.blog. 
If you're watching the video but would rather uh, listen, check out the podcast. Or if you're interested in what this would look like as a video, but you've been listening to the podcast, I encourage you to watch video, publiccomment.blog, or you can find me on Facebook. I'm on YouTube as well. I'm on Twitter. I'm out there. And if this was something that you could uh, deem good enough to do so, I hope you'd share this with those you share things with. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. By the way, I want to encourage you to offer me your thoughts, your feedback, your experiences, and um, let me know what I should be thinking about. And I would like to find a way to integrate that as I can. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Have a fantastic day, and I will talk to you again very soon. Bye.